We'll open our Bibles in, in just a minute, but let me open us in a word of prayer. Father, I dedicate this time to you, asking that you would accomplish uh, great things, helping us understand your word and your character and your love more deeply. This is something we know that you want to do and are able to do, and so we pray that you would prepare our hearts to be willing recipients of your word, and as we consider your covenant love for us. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, in the capital city of Croatia, there is what has got to be one of the strangest museums in the world. It is called the Museum of Failed Relationships. Would anybody have an entry for the Museum of Failed Relationships? Yeah? Uh, It began when two artists uh, broke up after a four-year romantic relationship. And uh, and after four years of a relationship, especially a, a close one, their lives had become so intertwined that it was really difficult for them to, to separate. They had purchased items together. They had memories and mementos of their favorite restaurants and, and, and all these sorts of things. And there were objects around their houses that were just complicated reminders of what was lost. And they didn't know what to do with some of these items. And so they, they uh, decided to create a museum. That's what I do whenever I don't know what to do with something. Right? They, maybe this is an artist thing. But they, they, they created a museum as a, and placed these artifacts there. And, and uh, what kind of started as a joke apparently snowballed. And soon, people from all over the country and even around the world began to contribute. And eventually, they had more than a thousand items for their sad museum. Each unique with a tragic story of a failed relationship. In the Museum of Failed Relationships, there were items like wedding photos and jewelry, as you might imagine. But that's boring. There is an axe that was used to chop up a couple's table where they had lunch or breakfast every day. There's a busted yard gnome, which a woman chucked at her husband's car after a disappointing discovery. There was a 25th, there is a 25th anniversary cake, which was cut in half when the wife came home and discovered on her 25th anniversary that her husband was in an affair. Right, so sad stories, but strange. I suppose the Museum of Failed Relationships would be an interesting place to visit, I suppose. A graphic reminder for us of how hard human relationships are. And how often they fail. How frequently people break their commitments to one another. And as I, as I read about the story, I couldn't help but start to think about all the things in the Bible that, be, that could be contributed to the Museum of Failed Relationships. The golden calf. 30 pieces of silver. I think Peter's rooster would be there, right? It's like a wax figurine or something, right? I mean, the Bible's full of failed relationships. And of course, there's human relationships that were strained and failed, right? Cain and Abel, Saul and David, Judas and Jesus. 
But the Bible is really a story that is bigger than that. It's, it's really a story about a failed relationship between God and the people that he created. Or is it failed? It's, it's really a story about how God has done great things to fix this failed relationship. God's relationship with mankind has a long history, and, my, and like most relationships and like most histories, it's very complicated. But it's the story of the Bible. And if we're going to understand the Bible, then we need to understand the contours of the story. So often we fragment the Bible into these little stories. We skip the hard parts, jump to the New Testament most of the time, and then are left with just this piecemeal version of what God's Word means. So we need to understand the contours of the story. And there's a critical, and that's a big part of this series, but there's a critical piece of the story that is often missed or understood or just assumed or misunderstood or just assumed that we understand when we don't. And that is the notion of covenant. Of covenant. You probably know that the word covenant appears in the Bible again and again and again, all throughout, all over the place. Covenant. There's a covenant with Noah, a covenant with Israel, a covenant with David, a covenant between Jonathan and uh, David. I mean, covenants all over the place. There's an old covenant. There's a new covenant. And of course, as we heard last week, Jesus said that there is a covenant which is in my blood poured out for many. And the idea of covenant is central to the Bible, and I want to spend, not just tonight, but at least one more night after this, thinking about covenant. Now before I try to describe what covenant is, I want to try to give you a couple reasons, or three reasons, for, for why this is something that you should take seriously. Three reasons that the, the idea of covenant is important for you to understand as, as a Christian. Um, tonight it might have a, an element of teaching, more teaching than preaching. I don't, I'm not really sure what the difference is, but just, just so you know. The first reason that you need to think carefully about covenants is that in its most basic form, a covenant represents God's desire for relationship. Covenant represents God's desire for a relationship with humanity. Now, I'll argue this more in, in a bit, but covenants are God's chosen vehicle for how he has decided to relate to humans. For how he has decided to have a relationship. Now covenants are always about relationships. And they, this is about how God, the major biblical covenants are about how God has chosen to relate to certain persons or to groups of persons. And that's a big deal. Right? Because God's relationship with man, I mean like, that's kind of what the whole Bible is about. Right? And if you're weak on that, if you're hazy on covenants, then there are going to be some really big holes in how you understand God and his character and the way that he has interacted with humanity throughout history. A second reason is that covenants help, will help you understand the Bible storyline. 
They'll help you trace the Bible storyline. Remember, one of the the one of the illustrations we're using for this series is, is that of a thread that goes all the way through the Bible, linking it all together. And covenants are very much a thread through the storyline. Covenants are not simply a theme, but they are a big theme. Maybe even the central theme of the Bible. In fact, I would argue that you can trace the entire storyline of the Bible by paying attention to how covenants unfold and how they relate or how they move from one to the next. Just a little quiz, right? How many covenants do you know of in the Bible? Right? Can you, can you put them together? Do you know the order? Do you know the, the contours? Well, that's what we're going to do over the next couple weeks. We're going to work through all the major covenants. Because they form the structure and they form the architecture of the Bible. I had a professor who called them the backbone of the Bible. If you don't understand the covenants, you don't understand the backbone, the major thrust of how the Bible is put together. And it seems that as the storyline of the Bible progresses, God uses covenants as the vehicle to move his plan forward, to keep the plan of redemption in motion. And he does this gradually, which is interesting. The covenants give us major landmarkers, or we could call them fence posts, to know where we are in the story and where we have come from. This is so important in reading your Bible, right? Especially when you're in the Old Testament. So, so when you're reading, whether it's CBR or any plan, whenever you're reading, you need to be able to be even just a decent reader. You need to be able to place where that text is in the progression of biblical covenants. You need to be able to understand what the environment is. What comes before it in terms of covenant and what comes after it. All right, this is just the idea of context. There's not, we talk, you hear people say, well, context matters. Well, the context is not just the verse before and the verse after, or the chapter before and the chapter after. It's the book before and the book after, and it's also the covenant before and the covenant after. There's a covenantal context. Otherwise, you get into big trouble. The way you interpret Jeremiah 29.11 has a lot to do with how you understand covenants. But I will not address that anymore tonight. A third reason, closely connected, I think I have four, is that covenants unify the Bible. The covenants show that the Bible is not two big stories or lots of stories, but that it is one story. It is one big story that advance God's story and are interrelated. You cannot read the Bible or the covenants in isolation. The covenants help us see the unity and the harmony of the scriptures. And they establish major theological concepts. You don't have to turn here, but just listen as I read uh, this important passage on the new covenant, right? When the prophet Jeremiah anticipated a covenant that Christ would bring, listen to how he talked about it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the covenant I made with their forefathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant 
which they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Right? I mean, did you, did you hear how Jeremiah framed the whole new covenant? It is in relationship to previous covenants. I mean, so we are really interested. He said, it's not like the old covenant. Well, if we don't understand the old covenant, then we're not going to be able to make any sense of how the new covenant is different from the old covenant. Right? The work of Jesus, the the cup that was the covenant in his blood is wrapped up in understanding not only the new covenant but how it relates to previous covenants it's a big deal a fourth reason that we need to think about this is that God's character is at stake God's character is at stake here I cannot even count how many times the Bible references the character of God in terms of his covenant keeping nature. He is one who makes covenants. That's one thing. But he is a God who keeps covenants. Perhaps the main text to hear tonight is Deuteronomy chapter 7. Listen, well, we've read the, I think I've read this every week for the, this whole series. But Deuteronomy 7 verse 9 says this. Know therefore that, your Lord, that the Lord your God is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his covenants and his commandments to a thousand generations. Deuteronomy 7, 9. The prophets were constantly talking about this quality in God. And they were banking their confidence in God and who he is based on his resume as a covenant keeper. Daniel spoke of this. He said, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Do you see? So the big takeaway so far is something like this. That God... The God who is high and lifted up, he is infinitely above the earth, has chosen to relate to humanity. And the structure that he chose to do that is covenant. Covenant describes relationship with God. Now tonight, I will just prepare you. We're going we're gonna to do kind of a groundwork phase. We're going to lay some groundwork that we're going to build upon later. And at the end, I will try to bring it up in a significant application. But let's ask the question first, what is a covenant? I mean, how do we even understand what a covenant is? I mean, because strictly speaking, you can't, you can't turn to a place in the Bible where it says a covenant is dot, 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 right? So we have, to, we have to do some thinking and we have to do some work to try to figure out what it is. And, the, and one of the ways that we start is we have to think about, okay, when the Bible uses the term covenant, especially at the beginning, what did covenant mean in that culture? Like what, what would they have understood a covenant to mean, to be? Obviously our culture, if you ask people what a covenant was in our culture... My goodness, I don't even, that would be a very scary experiment. Um, so we have to start with some cultural clues. And don't let this bore you. Trust me, it's going to get interesting. I think. All right. 
Okay, so in the ancient Near East culture, which is the biblical world, the world that surrounded our favorite Bible characters, the surrounding nations or governments or political leaders would often organize their political relationships with others through treaties. Right? We get that through treaties. And very often these treaties were organized between great big kings. I'm using fun kid language. Big kings and little kings. Right? Can we, can we say that? If you, if you like fancy words, we can say uh, great kings and vassal kings. Right? Big kings and small kings. I like that better. And the, way, the way it would work is something like this. The big king, the strong king, would, would promise... To keep the peace and to provide some, some form of blessing, whether it's protection or grain or, or, or free access to his Netflix account, whatever it is, right? He would, he would give some form of blessing if the little king, the vassal, would pledge loyalty and obedience, right? It's a treaty. It was a mutual agreement that benefited both parties, and these agreements became so common that they eventually took on a standardized form, like a, a written literary form. And we have lots of examples of this in history. Uh, the general form would be there is a preamble, right? Who were the kings involved? So they'd write it down and they would say, you know, big king A and little king B are involved in this covenant. And then there'd be a, a prologue, like a little bit of history about the relationship, what the kings have done for each other. And then there would be, and this is where it gets real important, some stipulations. What is expected? What, are the, what will the covenant do? And then there was an agreement on where the document, right, the covenant document would be kept. Would it be kept in the temple? Would it be kept in the glove box of his car, right? Where would it be? So they'd write that down. And then there would be, most of the time, blessings. If the covenant was kept, these are the blessings, and at the same time, there would be curses. If the covenant is broken, this is what will happen. Bad things, right? Now, in most cases, not all cases, but in most cases, the covenants were then ratified with blood. There was often a, a sacrifice, and there'll be more on this later. But this is the standard form. And most of the covenants in the Bible had this sort of shape. right? God's covenant with Israel... In Exodus uh, 20, really 20 through 24, you have almost, I mean, you have this, you have every single one of these elements there. I mean, you could go through and you could mark it out. All of these. And, and just a, a quick side note, um, covenants don't have to be between kings. Obviously, right, there, we have lots of examples of covenants that were not between kings. But they began with kings, and so that form uh, takes place. Covenants could be between neighbors, right? There could be an agreement to, to not move a landmarker, right? Jacob and Laban made a covenant with each other that was connected to respecting each other's territories, right? But that brings us to another characteristic of covenant, which is really important. In the Bible, covenants were not, they were not just written. They were cut. They were cut. I cannot tell you how long I spent trying to untangle this last summer, right? Often, the Bible speaks of when it starts a covenant, when God would establish a covenant, he would cut it. That's the word. And the reason for this is that covenants usually involve the shedding of blood. 
which was designed to show how serious the, and how binding the covenant was, right? It helps us make sense of common covenant language like the blood of the covenant. You see, Jesus used this language. In Exodus 24, which I just referenced, when, when uh, God made his covenant with the people of Israel, one of the things that Moses did in that, in that key day, uh, Exodus 24 verse 8 says, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. Man, that's weird. He threw it on the people and said this, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Isn't that interesting? In fact, in the surrounding culture, there's evidence that when animals were sacrificed for a covenant, the animal would even be mutilated. The animal would be not just cut in half, but torn in half. We have records of how animals would have their legs shoved down their throat. And the picture is this. If I break this covenant, let this happen to me. You remember God's covenant with Abraham we talked about in Genesis 15? How God passed between split animals, right? If you missed it, you might want to go check that out. But the idea is this. If you break a covenant, there's a curse. There's a curse. Covenants were not just a promise, and they were not just a contract. They were a blood bond, their blood, there was blood that was spilled that helped secure or seal the covenant. And this brings us to another big, really important idea that, that you can't really understand if you don't understand covenants. And that's the idea of headship, right? A representative. The blood that was spilled in these sacrifices was not the blood of the kings, right? The kings who were making a covenant did not spill their own blood, but they spilled the blood of animals. And the idea was that it would rep the animal represented the kings. The king didn't actually die to secure the covenant, but died vicariously through the sacrifice animals. Right? And it's important to understand that what would happen to the king would often happen to the people. If the king kept covenant, good things would happen to the people. And if the king broke covenant, bad things would happen to the people. He was a representative for people who were under him. There were lots of people affected. Right? So we think of this in terms of the covenant head. We'll build on all this, I promise, so, so bear with me. If he obeyed, the people were blessed, and if he disobeyed, the people suffered. This is why Moses was throwing blood on the people. It wasn't to cleanse them. It wasn't a, it, this wasn't a sacrifice of atonement. This was the blood of covenant to remind them of what would happen if they broke covenant. Blood would be spilled. Okay, that's what a covenant is. Covenant is a really clearly defined relationship. But there are two types of covenants that we need to think about. It's really important, as, as a part of this introductory piece, before we start looking at the covenants in the Bible, to understand that there's two broad categories. Because the covenants of the Bible, especially the big ones, right, there's lots, but like the big six, follow this basic structure that I've outlined with one big variation. All right, you got to understand, not every covenant is the same, okay? It took... I started, when I started studying covenants, I did not get that, right? They didn't all have the same structure. Um, in some cases, you have a big king 
entering into covenant without any stipulations, right? It's kind of like a one-sided, like all the responsibility is on the big king. That is, he would cut a covenant and he would not require the vassal king or the subjects to do anything. He would basically just say, hey, no terms, no conditions, right? If you break it, there's nothing for you to break. I'm the one doing this. I'm the only one that can keep and I'm the only one that can break. In other words, I will accomplish this. I hope that your gospel bones are starting to stir, right? But do you see how that's different? I mean, why would anybody establish a covenant like that? I'll do this for you. You don't have to do anything. Well, well, there were, I mean, there were reasons that, uh, you know, a, a secular king would do this. Sometimes a king would establish a covenant like this when a war hero returned home from war. I, he will cut a covenant that I will protect your family for five generations, right? You, there's nothing you can do to break it. I, the king, will do this. There's a sense of where it's unconditional and that the other person cannot break it. You see, it's important to distinguish two types of covenants. Theologians call this, and perhaps you've heard this, they they distinguish between the two, calling one a covenant of works and the other the covenant, a covenant of grace. A covenant of works or a covenant with grace. Both follow the general covenant pattern, but the difference is this. Who takes on the curse if the covenant is broken? The covenant of works, both take them on. The covenant of grace, one person takes them on. And covenant of works is kind of the standard. That's the normal operation, right? It was two-sided. It was conditional in a sense. A covenant of works. And then the covenant of grace was much more one-sided. It was more unilateral. It was in a sense, not technically, it was unconditional. An example. Think about God's covenant with Noah come to this next week. But think about God's covenant with Noah. If you want to turn, uh, turn to Genesis chapter 9, and you can see this. I, I think this is a clear example. Uh, ver, uh, verse 8. Okay, so pay attention to who is making covenants with who and what the terms are. Try to listen to some of those elements. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as you came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the whole earth. Okay, quiz. Who initiated the covenant? God, right? Clear. Noah did not seek this out. Noah is just, he's listening, right? It's a good, good plan when God's talking to you. Okay, what are the stipulations? Like, what is the blessing? God said, no flood. I will withhold judgment. I'll delay it. So we understand more broadly. Okay, now here's the thing. Who did he make it with? Noah. Noah's sons. All of his offsprings. And who else? All the animals. 
God made a covenant with the animals. Did you know that? I, maybe this will help me with my problem with my dog, to think about a guy's problem. I hadn't thought of that. Probably not. All right. Um, okay. But, but what did they have to do to uphold their end of the covenant? Like, what did the birds have to do to uphold the covenant? Nothing. What kind of covenant is this? Grace or works? It's a covenant of grace. Right? It's a covenant of grace. We, we won't go through tonight, but we could contrast that with God's covenant with Israel, which has like pages and pages of curses. Have you ever read those? In Deuteronomy, you're like, I'll skip past these, right? Pages of curses. This is a covenant of grace. God is going to do the work. God will make sure it happens, right? Are you beginning to see some of the broader implications here? Okay, now over the next several, so this is, that's an introduction to covenants, big picture. But over the next several weeks, we're going to look at each of the major covenants of the Bible. And tonight, this introduction, we're going to limit ourselves to just one covenant, and that's the covenant at creation. And I'll get to that in a moment. Actually, why don't you just turn over to Genesis chapter 2. I guess this is probably the hardest covenant to do, at least it's the most controversial. So I'll tell you, I'll tell you that, but I don't, I don't think it's too controversial. But okay, let's. If you look down, uh, Genesis two fifteen. This is sort of a summary of the covenant. We we need to see it in all the chapters. But the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Those are loaded terms. And the Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay. The word covenant obviously does not appear in in these verses. The word covenant does not appear in any of the creation account, which has led... Many people that I respect and who are smarter than me, I'll just go and tell you, uh, to, to say, hey, there, there is no covenant at creation, okay? Um, but there's also a lot of other smart people, smarter people than the first smart people, right, that I also respect, uh, and I agree with them, right? Because I, I think that the elements of covenant are all here. Also, there's this really interesting verse in Hosea chapter 6. Don't, don't turn there, just listen. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Right? Like it sounds like that there was a covenant that Adam transgressed that also Israel, like Adam, Israel transgressed, right? But even more than that, that's, that's one part. And there's some other, you know, textual things, uh, technical things. But even more than that, I think the elements of covenant are here. And that's why I'm persuaded, humbly, I had a professor who used to say, in my humble but accurate opinion, all right, in my humble but accurate opinion, uh, that there is a covenant here because all of the major elements, right? And you can see them in, in verses 15 through 17, where God is establishing the terms, the terms of the covenant relationship, right? Specifically, you see the, the terms of blessing that come for obedience, we got to read the whole story to get this. But if they obey, they get access to the tree of life. 
Right? They, they get to stay in the garden where God is. Big blessings. And I'm presuming that access to the tree of life means access to life forever. In other words, you will not die. You keep the covenant, you will not die. You will live forever. But then there's also the curse, obviously, for disobedience. You will surely die. Right? You see that there? Now, a major part of this... Okay, is this a covenant of works or a covenant of grace? Works. Very good. Y'all are excellent students, right? It's a covenant of, of works. Now, a major part of this covenant builds on ideas that we spent a whole sermon doing the, uh, the week before Easter. We spent a lot of time thinking in terms of sonship, and the big passage we looked at was here in Genesis chapter uh, 1, right? That God made man in his own image, and this idea of sonship, right? Um, the summary version, if you're like normal people and forget, right? Uh, I get that. But the summary version is something like this. When the Bible says that Adam and Eve were made in the image of God, what that means is they were made with the purpose, with the job, with the role of reflecting God. God placed them in the garden as ones with dominion, right? Dominion over the animals, dominion over the earth. And they were little kings. Hmm, that sounds familiar. They were vice regents. Right? They, part, the covenant that God made with them is he put them there with work to do, with something to do. They were to work the garden. They were to keep the garden. They were to reflect God. They were to be sons of God. Their role was to submit to God's rules. Right? Big king, little king. Submit to God's rules. Specifically, actually, only do not eat of a certain tree. Right? And they were to represent God's character as God's children, as God's son. They were to show that they were God's children by living like their father. Maybe this is ringing some bells if you were here then. But of course, as we all know, this didn't go well. But you see, God made it clear that if they transgressed the covenant, there would be a curse. What's the curse? Death. Other things, but namely, death. And if they kept the covenant, we can assume that they would have permanent access to the tree of life. So the covenant of creation was a covenant of works. And the curse of disobedience in Genesis 3 shows this, right? Man fails to uphold the end of the deal, and he is cursed. Well, Adam and Eve broke the covenant. They failed the test, and all the curses of the covenant immediately followed. Look at verse 17. It's just one of, one of them. And he said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. What's the word? Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Of course, there are curses for Eve and there are also curses for the serpent. And this stands in really sharp contrast to to what's going on. When God's creating the world, it's, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Blessing, blessing, blessing. And then suddenly we have all this cursing. Right? Sounds a lot like a covenant. And those curses are now in full effect. We didn't go into this element, but covenants are actually generational. Some of them. And this is a covenant that was generational. So the covenants continue today. Adam's failure affects us. 
And so does the curse. This is why the wages of sin is death. This, this is why you will die. Because you have sinned in Adam and the curse has come. Adam was our representative head. See, this is the only way you can understand Romans 5. There was a sense in which we sinned in Adam and then we also sin ourselves. Listen to Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And later, the, the same, same chapter says, And death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who is to come. Now, these are big ideas, and we'll pick up on them next week. But the thing, the thing to see now is how the covenant of creation was broken, and that the curses of that broken covenant continue today. And hopefully you can see that it's this covenant of creation, the broken covenant of creation that actually sets the stage for all that is to come, including the gospel and the new covenant. Now, I told you tonight would be a little bit different, right? Um, we're building a foundation, laying a foundation to build upon in the future. But let me ask before we close, how can we apply this? Can we apply some of Covenant 101 to our daily lives now? And I think we absolutely can because this is just the beginning. And I had three points of application, but I'm going to do just one. Okay. Um, this is the big point that I want you to see. What can we take from all this? God desires a relationship with you. God desires a relationship with mankind. The very existence of covenants shows this. That God, though he is a transcendent, holy God who is high and lifted up, and though we are made in his image, we are not like him in that regard. We are not high and lifted up and transcendent and holy. And so the existence of covenant, especially the existence of more covenants, of subsequent covenants that come after broken covenants, it shows the incredible love that God has for mankind. We should marvel with awe that God desires a relationship with us, especially as sinners. We know we didn't read this tonight, but do you remember what happened to Adam and Eve after they sinned? What's the first thing that they did? Their eyes were open to their nakedness, and so they hid. What is the very next thing that happens? Listen, this is Genesis 3, verse 8. Very next thing, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? After sin entered the world, the very first thing that God did was to go looking for his children. Now, I don't know what your story is tonight. I don't know how you're struggling or what's going on in your struggle with sin, but I want you to hear this. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what sins you're struggling with, and this, this, whether, you're a Christ, whether you're not a Christian yet or whether you are a Christian and have been for decades, God desires to have relationship with you. 
You may be Christian or non-Christian. You may be hiding in the shame of sin. You may be thinking that even if you could somehow manage to get to heaven, that it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be because God wants you there or because he likes you. But the covenants teach us otherwise. God wants a relationship with you and he has initiated it. God seeks sinners in their sin. God goes to sinners in their shame and nakedness. For the Son of Man did not come, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. So sinners, and I'm talking to you as well, Christians, sinner Christians, you do not have to hide from God. God is looking for you. Yes, we absolutely have to deal with our sin problem, but God has made a way for that in a new covenant, which we will see soon. So we should not have to hide from God like Adam and Eve. Instead, we should run to God. So let me close by reading two passages. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And then Jesus said to all who are listening, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if I could take the liberty to enter one word into that verse for our context, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes back to the Father except through me. Father, we thank you you've made a way. Help us to live not in shame, but boldly before you, fleeing sin and enjoying the blessings of covenant relationship with you. We ask this in your name. Amen.